Well, Neil has already uh, alluded to the uh, series that we're, we're on and as was introduced by uh, Christoph just a, a number of weeks ago. And uh, as he introduced this series uh, a few weeks ago, I think it, it whetted our appetite for the, the coming weeks of teaching from this classic epistle. And we are reminded that the, the letter was written just over 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. The church in Rome was in recovery following the expulsion of, by Emperor Claudius of Jews who were Christ followers, and Neil alluded to that. Gentile believers dominated the church for a few years, and when Hebrew believers in Christ gradually returned, the character of the church had been transformed. The Jews and the Gentiles had to be tolerant of each other, and differences demanded reconciliation. And Paul's letter was trying to address some of the divisions. He was also primarily writing in advance of his visit to Rome and reach, to, to reach more people with the gospel, always missionary. He claimed in his introduction that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. If you turn back to chapter 1 and verse 16, and this is a verse that you are well familiar with, where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And this is a verse I like to remember. Uh, and to take it as a, a kind of motto for my life. And I trust that you can adopt it too. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. There's no humiliation or embarrassment and advocating or championing the gospel. Even in these days that we face so much resistance, there's no embarrassment in advocating the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the letter, part of Romans 1, we, we read of God's wrath against a godless society. And Neil referred to this in his sermon recently. The Roman culture entertained life that rebelled against God. Social, sexual, physical, family, spiritual corruption was everywhere. And the believers were challenged by this culture and struggled to live a righteous life. And chapter 1, verse 17 was significant and central to Paul's teaching in Romans. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And of course, that's inspired by Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. The righteous life for the, the Roman believers is reckoned to them through faith alone in Jesus. Now we will be returning to this teaching, no doubt, as we continue to focus on Romans. The verse is one of the fundamental verses that inspired the, the Lutheran Reformation. 
It inspires our doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. But our concentration is on chapter 2 this evening. And the overriding theme in this chapter, and as we read it there, I'm sure this came to you, is judgment. Judgment. And we remember the saying of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way, as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, so firstly, in this chapter, Romans and Gentiles were judging each other. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Chapter 1 alluded to the unrighteous behavior that was prevalent. And in the community of the church in Rome, Gentiles were being judged as living adulterous and immoral lives. But Jews were without excuse too. And, and Paul here pours cold water on the moralizers in both camps. He writes, you therefore have no excuse. They were living out the illustration Christ spoke of. Whether they were Jews or Gentiles, they were pointing out the dust in one's eye when they had a log in their own. I, I was told a story just this past week of a, a pastor who was asked to speak at a support group for those who suffered from addiction, or addiction to drugs or alcohol. And he told the group of how he passed through a red light district in a city and was tempted to visit a club. And as he told how he found himself yielding to the temptation, a number of the clients in the support group raised their hands. Now, he expected questions, but none was asked. He proceeded with his story and told how he was affected by what he experienced in that club. And a, a few more hands were raised. But again, expecting some questions, there weren't any. No one asked a question. Then he concluded his story by confessing how guilty he felt and angry he was with himself. He felt guilty and, and dirty because of the experience that he had in that club. And almost all the men of the support group raised their hands. Now the speaker asked the director of the group afterwards, why so many raised their hands but never asked a question? And the director explained, that's how the group works. When personal stories are shared, the audience 
raise their hands when they identify with the feelings and experiences referred to. So don't ever uh, accuse or judge. They aren't there to judge, but to support and help one another with their addictions. They don't point the finger. The sins of one are the sins of many. Now, I had a friend who was a, a clerk of a Kirk Session in a church that I ministered uh, some years ago. Uh, and he always repeated the saying, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. If you point the figure, finger at someone for a wrong, there are always three fingers pointing to you. And this is what Paul accuses the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman church of in, in verse 1. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. We ought never to forget Romans 3 and 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, if we are to make judgments, and if we are going to judge other people, we do so with caution. As someone said, the critic who starts with himself will have no time to take on outside contracts. And secondly, in this chapter, we see God's judgment based on truth. We're inclined to push any thought of God as judge way back in our minds. It has been said, in this liberal age, we tend naturally to avoid any thought of God's judgment. I probably have to confess that each day I, I don't always think about God's judgment or God's judgment of me. The Jews, Paul writes to, may have thought that they as God's chosen were immune to God's judgment. The Gentiles, yes, they're suspect and to be judged, but surely the Jewish believers were free of God's wrath. But verse 3, we read, did they think they were to escape God's judgment? We read in, the, in verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness intended to lead you to repentance? You know, even we may form bad theology and consider that God is much too kind and forgiving to punish anybody, and we can sin with immunity. There are 73 references 
in the Old Testament of God as judge. Only 16 specific references to God as being merciful. Now, you can work through a good concordance and see what you get. Yet I know that when I pray and address God, I will say over and over again, loving and merciful Father. I, I, I don't often pray to our Heavenly Father who is judge. Yet the thought of God as judge in the Old Testament well exceeds that of God as merciful. The answer to Paul's question in verse 3, do you think you will escape God's judgment? The answer to that question is emphatically no. Paul here in Romans 2 insists that God will judge Jew and Gentile. And in verse 16, he concludes, God will judge man's secrets as the gospel declares. So firstly, we see here, God is judge and lawgiver. God is the chief arbitrator and legislator. In, in our judicial system, parliament makes the laws and the judge administers it. But in the Old Testament, God gave the law and God judges by the law. And secondly, in verse 2, we see God's judgment is based on truth. The judgments of the nation's courts are not always based on the whole truth. I, I read in a newspaper recently of a prisoner in the United States of America in a prison there being released after four decades having been acquitted of murder due to a DNA test. The culprit had also been in the same jail for another crime, but was now deceased. When God judges, he knows all the truth. Nothing can escape him. God cannot be fooled. God is omniscient. He knows all the details of our lives. His judgment is true. He has no bias. Shows no discrimination. And thirdly, God as judge executes the sentence. In verse 6, he will give to each person according to what he has done. And God is just. And so he will see that every man and woman receives what is deserved. To those who persist in doing good, to the glory of God, he will give eternal life. To those who are self-seeking and reject the truth, there will be wrath and anger. So take this, and I think we, we all find it hard to comprehend God as our Father who threatens to punish us. J.I. Packer, in his book, and many of us have re read his book, Knowing God, writes, it must be emphasized that the doctrine of divine judgment is not to be thought of primarily as a bogey. 
with which to frighten men into an outward form of conventional righteousness. When we consider God as judge, we consider the moral character of God. God has no place for immorality, no place for sin, no place for evil. God can't accept sin and unrighteousness in us. He can only reward and bless righteousness. And we leave God with no other alternative but to judge. The Bible is emphatic. At the end, everyone, without exception, will be judged. And you may remember Amos's message was prepare to meet thy God. We can be sure of our final judgment. We can be sure of meeting a perfectly just judge. And the biography of our life will be presented. This is your life. And but alas, it will not be perfect. Our doings are far short of perfection. Our doings will never merit an award. Wouldn't it be totally unfair if God would render you or me better than anyone else? What do you think? Verse 11 says, there will be no favoritism. Our works are judged. But our salvation is not through our own works. We can't boast of them. Mine are no better than yours. And yours are no better than mine. And I trust you agree with that. Remember Ephesians 2 and verse 8. By grace we are saved through faith, not of works, lest we boast. We can't brag about our works. Our works will be judged. As an index to our character, our works are an index to where our heart lies, where our faith lies. And when our faith is in Jesus Christ, when we believe in him as our saviour, God justifies us. He sets us free from the condemnation our works deserve or merit. We sang that wonderful hymn this morning, and many of you were here this morning. And, and I repeat the, the last verse of that hymn. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Fold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Fold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And that is our justification by faith alone. And we were singing about it earlier. 
we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And only when we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith in Jesus who died and rose again for us can we stand before God. Only through faith in Jesus will be judged to be righteous. Paul wrote in verse 16, this will take place on the day when God will judge man's secrets through Jesus Christ as the gospel declares. So what does this mean? Well, firstly, we know how foolish it is for us to judge anyone. Secondly, we know we are unfit to face God, our judge. Thirdly, what do we do? The only answer I can give is invite the coming judge to be your present savior. J.I. Packer says, run from him now and you will meet him as judge then and without hope. Seek him now and you will find him and you can look forward to that future meeting with joy knowing that you are justified. There is no condemnation. The judge I have spoken of this evening never wants to have to separate us on the day of judgment. He invites us to turn to Jesus, to trust him for our justification, that is, our means of freedom, our freedom, and to get on with doing works to his glory. Thirdly, as we consider these verses, and it's impossible for me to go through all these verses this evening, but, but let's turn to this section, third section, verse 17 to 29. And, and we see here that bragging was divisive. The Jew in the church was self-confident and self-righteous. They had the legacy of the law. The Gentiles had the privilege of receiving the law, the Mosaic law, but were living by the law. These were the people who were living by their conscience. The requirements of the law were written on their hearts. They seemed to have a, a built-in sense that there is right and wrong. The Jews were proud of their privilege and presented themselves as righteous. Were they fulfilling the law and practicing what they taught or preached? Were they obediently keeping the commands of God? Well, Paul asks a number of rhetorical questions from verses 21 to 24. And in verse 23, he asks, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Their witness to the Gentiles was discredited. They weren't keeping the law, yet they were having some pride in it. And circumcision was a sign of the covenant relationship with, with God. But what credit did 
bringing circumcised, being circumcised have when they weren't living by the law. The Gentile who was living by the law written in his heart was demonstrating the life of the faithful. Whereas though they were circumcised. And Paul's conclusion was in verse 29. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. On the day of judgment, the state of the heart is what will be judged. Our only boast as we stand before God, the judge, is in Jesus, his righteousness. And only through faith in Christ alone can we be justified. And only as we put our trust and faith in Christ and we have the surrendered our heart to him can we stand before God. Delivered. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus trusting in his righteousness alone. Not in anything that we can brag about, but only in Christ. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, as we bow before you, we are humbled. As we acknowledge you, as the supreme judge. And Father, as we have been thinking of this this evening, we once again are humbled and we come repentant. For we confess our sins, just how far short we are. And Father, we thank you those of us who know Jesus as Savior, Lord, thank you this night for the work of your Spirit in our lives. And we pray that by that work that we may live out a life that demonstrates that which is good and faithful, that which is a true service unto Jesus. But yet, O oh Lord, we know even in that we fall short. Gracious God, we are reminded this evening that one day we will stand before you, our judge, our heavenly father. And Father, we pray that each of us will be able to stand before you, knowing that we have put our trust in Jesus and alone in his righteousness, for it is only through his righteousness that we can enter into your presence, be received, and be welcomed by you. So gracious Lord, once again, as we come to an end of another Sunday, as we reflect on our worship in this place and in other places, we thank you, Father, for that truth that we 
who stand before you in Jesus are set free, justified by faith alone. And there is no condemnation for those who put their trust in the Lord. Father, we thank you. Father, we praise you. Father, you bless us. And we thank you for Jesus who died and rose again that we might have life and more abundantly and that we may be set free. O Lord, receive us as we are and help us to walk in step with Jesus each day for his glory and praise. Amen.